Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, let's continue in uh, a time of prayer, continue to bow our minds and our hearts to our Lord in heaven. Father, you are the one who can bring life to dead hearts, and you are the one who can turn lights on in darkened minds and hearts. And we pray, Lord, in faith that you would do just that this morning if there is someone here who has not yet been born again, who does not know you in a personal saving way. We pray, Lord, that you would do this. And Lord, we pray now as we go to this word in Matthew 7, which is largely about self-examination, that each of us here uh, would concentrate on doing that work of self-examination and that you, Holy Spirit, would work in the midst uh, to uh, correct, perhaps, to redeem, uh, Lord, to have your pleasure in doing what you need to do with us today. So we pray your help, uh, both for me as I preach and those who are listening, and we give this time in your word to you. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, last Sunday in the preaching time, uh, we journeyed through what was really the first part, the initial part of the application section of the Sermon on the Mount. So verse seven, or sorry, verse 15 of chapter 7 marks the beginning of this part at the tail end of Jesus' sermon where he calls for a response to the instruction that he's given us throughout the sermon. We must respond to what Jesus demands. To be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ is to respond to his instruction, to actually put into practice his commands and his prohibitions, to make operative in one's life the things that he teaches. And so the question for me as I begin preaching today and the question for you as you listen is, are we, each of us, genuine disciples of Jesus Christ? Are we doing the will of God as commanded by Jesus? Or have we actually deceived ourselves into thinking we are disciples of Jesus when the fruit of our lives shows otherwise? Now, this is a monumentally important question and a very solemn question. And it's a question that Jesus confronts us with now in the next portion of his sermon. So I hope you have a Bible open. In verse 21 of this seventh chapter of Matthew, Jesus says to us, Listen to Jesus. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what I want us to notice here as we begin looking at this verse is that Jesus puts an emphasis on what people say. Not everyone who says to me. And then in the, in the very next verse, in verse 22, his emphasis will be the same when he says, on that day many will say to me. So there is an emphasis in this passage on saying, on 
verbal activity. Jesus tells us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, just to be clear here, to say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus is to profess with the mouth that Jesus is deity. And that's a good thing. To say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, is to respectfully recognize that Jesus is our master. To say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus is to make what John Stott has called a courteous, theologically orthodox, enthusiastic, and public profession or confession that Jesus is one's Lord. So, not only is there nothing wrong with such verbal affirmation of Jesus, it is in fact very necessary for believers to confess Jesus in such a way. After all, isn't there a high value placed on verbal confession in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, where it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. As believers, we know that verbally professing and confessing Jesus as Lord is quite indispensable. We must do that. The problem is, and here I want you to listen very carefully, verbal confession of Jesus Christ is not enough. When you want to start a car, to just have fuel and fuel only is not enough. Fuel is certainly necessary in order for you to start a car, but fuel in itself is not sufficient to start the car. You need to have other things in place along with the fuel, like electricity for the spark plugs and a working starter, etc. When everything necessary is in place, the car will then start. Well, we've said that verbal confession that Jesus is Lord is necessary to be sure, but it is not sufficient for us as disciples. What does Jesus tell us here? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven And we ask, who is it then, Jesus, who will enter the kingdom of heaven? He says, "It's and we need to listen to this carefully, it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That person will enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you see this? It is so utterly important. Jesus is in no way discouraging people from confessing Lord, Lord with their mouths. 
Indeed, that has to happen in the life of the believer. But to be an actual, genuine disciple of Jesus Christ, and thus to enter into the kingdom of heaven, it means that one must also be a doer of the will of the Father. Friends, there must necessarily, non-negotiably, be a combination of talk and walk if a person is to be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. Consider some of the sayings of Jesus in this connection. In John 14:15, Jesus connects our professed love for him with the necessity of us keeping his commandments. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To profess love for Jesus has to match up with doing his word, with keeping his commandments. A few verses later in John 14, 21, and again in verse 23, Jesus says something very similar when he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And if anyone loves me, he will Keep my word. Jesus also asks us point blank in Luke 6.46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Friends, listen. To be a bona fide, true and genuine, actual disciple of Jesus will mean doing the will of the Father, doing the Sermon on the Mount and the other teachings of Jesus, making this actually operative in our lives. And to do the will of the Father, here in verse 21, is really the same as obeying the teachings of Jesus. Because after all, didn't Jesus say over in John 8.28 that he speaks just as the Father has taught him. To hear and obey Jesus is to hear and obey the word and the will of the Father. As commentator Knox Chamblin has said, doing the will of the Father and obeying Jesus' own teachings are two descriptions of one habit. Again, doing the will of the Father and obeying Jesus' own teachings are two descriptions of one habit. Habit, yes, to be a genuine, actual disciple of Jesus Christ and not an imposter is to do the will of the Father as revealed in Jesus. Well, friends, in the preaching time this morning, you and I are encouraged to do some self-examination. We are encouraged to do, as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. The question that each of us must ask ourselves this morning is a very sobering question. Am I a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ after all, or am I not? Does my life match up 
with the description of the true disciple that Jesus gives us here in verse 21. Is it my habit in life, though I may fail from time to time as we all do, but is it my habit in life, my desire to do the will of the Father, as that will is taught in its specifics by Jesus Christ? Now, the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, Jonathan Edwards, once described how there is a direct and essential relationship between being regenerated or made alive by the Spirit of God and what Edwards called holy practice. In other words, to be genuinely born again of the Spirit of God is going to issue in doing God's will. To be born again is going to issue in a desire and an attempt to practice what we've been taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, here's what Edwards wrote on pages 320 and 321 of my copy of his Religious Affections, written back in 1746. Edwards said, I want you to listen closely and I'll go slowly here. He said, the tendency of grace in the heart to holy practice is very direct And the connection most natural, close, and necessary. True grace is not an an inactive thing. Indeed, there is nothing in heaven or earth of a more active nature, for it is life itself, and the most active kind of life, even spiritual and divine life. Edwards said, grace is no barren thing. There is nothing in the universe that in its nature has a greater tendency to fruit. Godliness in the heart has as direct a relation to practice as a fountain has to a stream or as the luminous nature of the sun has to beams sent forth, or as life has to breathing, or the beating of the pulse, or any other vital act. For it is the very nature and notion of grace that it is a principle of holy action or practice. Regeneration, he said, which is that work of God in which grace is infused, has a direct relation to practice, for practice is the very goal of grace. Edwards is emphasizing there the close and very intimate relationship between the experience of being enlivened by God, have you been enlivened by God's Spirit, The relationship between that and a person's walking with God in terms of doing and practicing the will of God. An evidence that a person is truly saved 
is that they will desire to make efforts to do the will of God that is revealed in Scripture. Jesus tells us in verse 21 that confessing with the lips that Jesus is Lord while necessary for the disciple is not enough when it comes to entering the kingdom of heaven. One must also be a doer of the will of the Father. Let's go on to verse 22. Jesus continues, listen to Jesus. Jesus says, on that day... On which day, Jesus? When Jesus says, on that day, here in verse 22, he is almost certainly referring to Judgment Day, which is yet to come. Because several times, especially in Matthew's Gospel, and even more in Luke's Gospel, Jesus uses the terminology of that day when he's making reference to Judgment Day. So that's the context here in verse 22. Jesus is talking now about Judgment Day, which for each and every one of us is still to come. On that day, he says, many will say to me. Now, notice first of all that word, me. Many will say to me. Well, what we learn from this word here is that on Judgment Day, people will be addressing Jesus. Many will say to me, Jesus will be there as judge on judgment day. He will be the one on the judge's bench who determines who enters the kingdom of heaven, verse 21, and who does not. It's Jesus whom each of us will address on judgment day. On that day, many will say to me. Also notice that word, many, here. Many will say to me. It's not that a person here and a person over there will say what they are about to say to Jesus. It's not that the rare person or the odd person will say. It's many will say. There will be a great big number of people. And what will the many say to Jesus on Judgment Day? The many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, friends, there are several things for us to chew on here. With verse 22. First of all, just skipping ahead momentarily, the many here in verse 22 who say this are about to be eternally rejected by Jesus in verse 23. Keep that in mind as we consider verse 22. All these many people, these people who remind Jesus that they legitimately prophesied in his name. All these many people who remind Jesus that they legitimately cast out demons in his name. All these many folk who remind Jesus that they legitimately did many mighty works in his name during their lifetimes, they are eternally rejected 
by Jesus Christ. So that the teaching here is at least this. I want you to listen carefully. That the ability to work supernatural phenomena, to prophesy, to do exorcisms, to do mighty works, all of these things are not a sure sign of saving faith. I'll repeat that. The ability to work supernatural phenomena, to prophesy and do exorcisms and mighty works, is not a sure sign that a person has saving faith. After all, what do we read in Exodus 7, verse 11? We read that the enemies of God, mark it, the enemies of God at that time, the Egyptians, were able to perform some of the same mighty works that Moses and Aaron performed. The enemy Egyptians were also able to throw down a staff so that it became a serpent, as Moses and Aaron had done. And down in Exodus 7.22, the magicians of Egypt, these enemies of God's purposes, they also repeated the miracle of turning Egyptian water to blood, just like Moses and Aaron had done. And the Egyptians were further successful in producing frogs by stretching out their hands over water, just as Moses and Aaron had done. Again, our point here, friends, the ability to work supernatural phenomena, to prophesy, to do exorcisms, to work mighty works, is not a sure sign of saving faith. In Acts chapter 16, we have a description of a slave girl who had a spirit of divination where she was able to predict the future, to tell fortunes that made her owners a fortune, no pun intended. Her real ability to do that, and I think it was real, her real ability to do that did not automatically mean that she was in Christ, that she had saving faith. The point once more, and we labor to bring it across, is that the ability to produce mighty signs and wonders is not a sure sign that one has saving faith. Jesus himself tells us, in Matthew 24, 24, that false Christs and false prophets will arise having real ability to perform great signs and wonders. There's power there, to be sure. But obviously, no saving faith in the false Christs and the false prophets who are wielding the power. When Paul talks about the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, he describes the lawless one as having satanic power to perform false signs and wonders. And Revelation 13, there, one of the beasts is described as having ability to perform great signs. Again, all of this shows us that the ability to produce mighty signs and wonders in and of itself, though it may be a very legitimate and a very real ability, 
is definitely not a sure sign that one has saving faith or that one is in Christ. Craig Blomberg reminds us, he says, signs and wonders can come from sources other than God, including both demonic, the demonic world and human manufacture. Back to verse 22. The many will say to Jesus on judgment day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And as they say this to judge Jesus, they desperately, desperately want Jesus to nod in recognition of the feats that they had performed in Jesus' name during their lifetimes. They want Judge Jesus to pronounce favorably on them and say, yeah, your resume, your CV showing all of these wonders and exorcisms and prophecies that you've done is enough. Welcome to heaven. But that's not what happened. The attempts of the many to self-justify before Jesus Christ fail utterly. And they fail horrifyingly. Verse 23, Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, or we could translate, Then I will profess over these people who come to me with that strictly wonder-working resume, I will profess what? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this has to be one of the most arresting Solemn, sobering verses in all of the Bible. The reason that the people in verse 22 are rejected by Jesus here in verse 23 is that Jesus never knew them. You see this? You see how Jesus makes relationship with himself the criterion for how he judges our eternal destiny. I never knew you. The verb to know here has to do with Jesus having personal involvement or personal relationship with people. He didn't know the people in verse 22 in terms of being in a saving relationship with them. These people ultimately did not belong to the great shepherd, Jesus. Oh, they may have prophesied. They may have cast out demons and worked wonders in the name of Jesus. But underneath it all, Jesus knows that they never submitted to his lordship. They didn't obey the will of the Father in their lives. Their inner person was not submitted to Jesus Christ. As Craig Blomberg says, perhaps these people fooled many on earth. But Jesus knows 
that they never had a saving relationship with him. Years ago, there was a New York Yankees baseball fan who devised a way, so he thought, to be able to park in the VIP parking at Yankee Stadium on game day. The guy's plan was to simply pretend that he was a close friend of the then owner of the Yankees, George Steinbrenner. So this guy would simply pull into the VIP lot and he'd tell the lot attendant that he was Steinbrenner's good friend and then he'd get his VIP parking spot. Well, unfortunately for him, what happened on the day that he decided to carry out his plan was that Steinbrenner himself was the parking lot attendant. Steinbrenner was there to do some personal investigation into some traffic issues that they'd been having around the stadium. When the guy pulled in and realized that it was Steinbrenner, he quickly gave some lame statement about, oh, I must be in the wrong place, and, and, and then drove away. Friends, Steinbrenner knew who his real friends were. And this guy, trying to steal a parking spot, certainly wasn't one of them. The owner knows who his real friends are. Jesus knows who is really his. Jesus knows who his real, genuine disciples are, and he knows who the fakers are, who the imposters are. And on Judgment Day, I'm here to tell you right now, there will be no fooling. Jesus Christ. Notice, I never knew you, Jesus says in verse 23. Never! It's not that maybe at one time these people had been known by Jesus, but then they had strayed away. It's, I never knew you. These people were never authentic disciples, though they did so many glamorous things. And on Judgment Day... Jesus will command such people to depart from him. Depart from me, he says. Now, at the final judgment, which is the context here, to be commanded by Jesus to depart from him means to be eternally banished from his presence. And to be eternally banished from the presence of God is the essence of hell. There is nothing sadder. There is nothing more grave or more frightening than to be commanded by Jesus Christ on Judgment Day, depart from me. And yet, for the person who does not submit to the Lordship of Jesus in this lifetime, for the person who does not seek to obey the will of the Father in this lifetime. For the person who is not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, this will be the awful sound in their ears on that day. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Now, I'm just the messenger. This is the word of Jesus Christ. If you want to get mad at me, you can do that. 
But underneath, I pray that you're reckoning with Jesus Christ right now. There's no skirting around the difficult nature of this passage. But I say to you this morning, it is a sweet grace that Jesus spoke to us these very solemn words of verses 21 through 23 right now in advance of our deaths. It's a sweet grace. Through these words, Jesus is urgently calling you right now and calling me to do some serious self-examination, to see whether we are in the faith. As Lloyd-Jones once put it, each of us is passing through this world in the direction of the final judgment, and each of us will have to stand before the judgment throne of Christ. It is a grace, friends, for us to hear the solemn warnings of these verses now so that we will repent of our sin and receive Jesus and lean fully on His righteousness and come to know Him before we die. Amen? I want to do two things as we work toward a conclusion. First of all, in the interests of self-examination, I want to sketch for you four different specific types of characters, types of characters that you will normally encounter in almost any contemporary local church. And in describing these specific character types, I do it simply to bring us caution in keeping with this word of Jesus. As you compare and contrast yourself with the characters that I will describe, I want to ask you to check yourself. Is it me who he's describing? And if so, what does it mean for me? Have I deceived myself into thinking that I'm a true disciple when maybe I'm not? And if I'm not, what must I do about it today? And the second and very last thing I want to do after we get through those personality, those character type descriptions, is to bring gospel hope to each person in the sound of my voice who has a desire to do the will of the Father as Jesus wants in verse 21, but finds that he or she often falters at the task because of weakness. I know I'm in that category. So first, the character types that, in my experience, are just about in every local church. I want to give you four of them. And please, test yourself. Don't look at anybody else. Test yourself as we go through these. And may the Holy Spirit of God convict each of us where necessary for his great redemptive purposes. Again, remember that in our passage, before we do this, remember in our passage what Jesus is after is two things. To be a true and genuine disciple is, number one, to do the will of the Father, verse 21, and not just merely say the right stuff. And, number two, to be a true and genuine disciple is to know Jesus, to be in an actual, personal, saving relationship with Him. The first character type that I would describe to you that we find in just about any local church is the person who rests much more in the trappings of their faith than they rest in the person of Jesus himself. This is the person who may have grown up Christian, 
who has maybe been surrounded by church and the language of church from as, as an early age as they can remember, but who has actually never been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. This person may indeed attend prayer meetings. He or she may serve the church in all sorts of activities. This person may say all the right things and talk all the church talk and repeat the popular Christian cliches, and yet he or she has never actually been rebirthed. This person has never genuinely given himself or herself to the living Lord Jesus Christ. I offer you this first description in order to say to you, don't be self-deluded. You must know that this kind of person that I just described, if they die that way, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The second character type, who we also find in just about any local church, is the person who simply wants to be part of a church for the reason that they prefer a more moral environment than an immoral environment. This kind of person comes to assume that by virtue of the fact that they hang around a church, that they must be Christians themselves. In reality, though, it's the church they're interested in. It's the people and the activities and not the Lord of the church and his salvation. They like the social scene at the church. They benefit from it. But knowing Jesus and obeying Jesus is foreign territory. I offer you the second description in order to say to you, don't be self-deluded. You must know that this second kind of person will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. And you must walk the narrow way and do the will of the Father as evidence of your rebirth. You must know Jesus Christ in a personal saving relationship. Well, the third kind of person that we find in pretty much every local church is the person, listen, who is disproportionately obsessed with either prophetic teaching or who is overly enthusiastic about the supernatural glamour of things like exorcisms and miracles. These things come to absorb this third kind of person to the degree, listen, that personal obedience to the rather unglamorous commands of Jesus takes a distant backseat. Be warned. You must not substitute an enthusiasm for charismata and or prophecy for doing the will of the Father in your everyday life. You must beware of being distracted from being obedient to Jesus in your everyday by having an obsessive interest in the supernatural and in prophecy. No tomatoes yet. I think I'm doing okay. Finally, the fourth character type that I would mention this morning that you find in just about every church is the person who has an imbalanced and unhealthy focus 
on the intellectual aspects of the faith at the expense of walking with Jesus in everyday mundane experience as a disciple. Now, obviously, it is crucial and important for us to use the minds that God has given us when it comes to our faith. I don't think that many Christians do it enough. But I'm describing here the person who has it all out of balance. Their concern is for rightness of doctrine, and they have a zeal for precise theology and stringent orthodoxy. They may even be able to preach a doctrinally perfect sermon or write a detailed, accurate commentary on a biblical book, and yet it is at least possible for such a person to not actually know Jesus at all. It's all intellectual assent and cognitive systematizing and brain work. There is no genuine spiritual life. I offer this fourth description in order to have us test ourselves. Is this me? Don't be self-deluded. You must know that this fourth kind of person, if they die not knowing Jesus, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, friends, who is the person who will enter the kingdom of heaven at the day of judgment? He or she is the person who knows Jesus, who is in a saving personal relationship with Jesus, and who does the will of the Father as evidence of that saving relationship. He or she is the person who matches up with the Beatitudes, the person who is poor in spirit, who is meek, who is humble, who is merciful, who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, who groans in spirit as he or she walks through this fallen world. Test yourselves this morning. Well, as promised, the final thing I want to do today is to give some comforts to those here today who resonate in their very bones with Jesus' description of the genuine disciple as the one whose whole focus in life is to do the will of the Father. Now here, I'm borrowing almost exclusively from the Puritan John Flavel, who lived in the 17th century. Flavel gives six supports, as he called them, six supports to the person who has a real desire to do the will of the Father, but who is nevertheless weak in grace and finds himself or herself often carried away by temptations and obstacles, much to his or her great grief. Now, for the sake of time, I want to give you four of the six supports that Flavel gave that I personally find most helpful. First of all, Flavel reminds the person who desires to do the will of the Father but fails from time to time, that your justification or your being forgiven by God and being counted righteous by God, that's what justification is in a nutshell, your justification does not, listen, does not depend on your obedience, but rather on the obedience of Jesus Christ. That if you have flaws and lapses in your obedience to the will of the Father, it does not affect your justification because gloriously 
your justification depends not on your obedience, but on the obedience of Jesus. Amen? You must remember that. Secondly, to the person whose desire is to do the will of the Father, but who finds flaws in their ability to obey and is grieved by those flaws, Flavel says, listen, your very grief over not being able to obey in the way you'd like is a proof that you are in Christ. To be grieved over your disobedience shows that you have a decent acquaintance with your heart, that you hate sin in yourself, and that you desire to love God more fervently. And these are all good things. They show that you are alive to the Holy Spirit. Third, to the person who finds that though they want to do the will of the Father, they are inconsistent in obedience and they grieve over that disobedience, Flavel says, and I love this one, God uses even your times of disobedience for your good. He uses even your times of disobedience for your good. Because he teaches you by your disobedience that you have no grounds to be proud. That's a good thing. He weans you off in those times. He weans you off further from self-dependence. That's a good thing. And he makes you admire the riches of his grace. And in those times, he's also making you long more for heaven. Flavel says, these are all good fruits that spring up from such a bitter root. And then fourth and finally, to the person who wants to obey the will of the Father as revealed in Jesus, but who finds that they often fail and they're saddened by that failure, Flavel says, and I'm quoting him directly here, Though the defects of your obedience are grievous to God, your deep sorrows for them are well-pleasing in His sight. Though the defects of your obedience are grievous to God, your deep sorrows for them are well-pleasing in His sight. And Flavel quotes Psalm 51.17. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. We could add here Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit. So although God is grieved by our sin, when we are sorrowful over that sin, the sorrow pleases him. So take heart. Well, I trust that this has been a meaningful time of self-examination for each of us uh, as we've sat under what Jesus has preached to us in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. I would encourage you to take this passage and walk over to the Mount Royal Cemetery for a sobering and grave time of self-examination before you yourself are six feet under. I mean that with all my heart. May each and every one of us go, here from, to, go from here today with a sober sense, I hope, 
of our true condition. And may God be pleased to turn us from self-delusion, if he needs to do that, to a true awareness, a self-awareness as we stand before him. May he save us indeed today if we need saving. Amen. Let's take some time for silent prayer, and then I will close us at an appropriate time. Father, we praise you because you have given us everything necessary to be saved. You are the Redeemer. You have given us everything necessary for us to come into that saving relationship with Jesus where we know him. And you give us the Holy Spirit's power and enablement to do the will of the Father. We thank you, Lord, that what you command, you give and you provide. As we go from here today, Lord, may this word ring in our hearts and minds, and may you use it to do uh, the surgery uh, that you require, perhaps, in us. Uh, the, uh, Lord, the, the, uh, as we do with computers, with antiviral software that searches out the virus and kills it, may you do that, Lord, with this word in us, if there is an untoward, black, bitter fruit that is growing up in us, Lord, may you cut that off by your power and by your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. May he who is your light, your strength, your song, and your cornerstone prepare you for the fiercest drought and storm. And may he quiet your fears and cease your strivings, that you may know the heights of his love and the depths of his peace. Amen.